Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 330. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 330 you're listening to. My guest today is Bill Schnee, who is an internationally renowned producer, engineer, and mix master. He has over 125 gold and platinum records and 50 top 20 singles and is known as an engineer's engineer. Bill has worked on dozens of Grammy-nominated and winning albums and has been personally nominated 11 times for the Best Engineered Album category, winning twice for Steely Dan's Asia and Gaucho. He also has won an Emmy Award for Best Sounding Mixing for a Variety Special and a Dove Award. In his 50-plus year career, Bill has found success in every musical genre, from pop to rock to R&B to gospel to country. Bill also has a brand new book out. It's called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Sound of a Generation. I will include a link in the show notes, and I highly encourage you to check that out. Bill talks to us from Blackbird Studios in Nashville, where we have a great conversation I think you'll enjoy. So, Bill Schnee, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about expanding your DAW skills. You know, I wish I knew more languages beyond my native language, simply for the fact that it would allow me to communicate more easily across the world. When traveling, I could navigate my surroundings with more confidence if I spoke the local language. Additionally, I would consider living long-term or short-term in a country whose native language was not my own. I find DAWs a lot like languages. Each has its own unique look, feel, sound, culture, etc. And learning a new DAW, fortunately, is not as hard as learning a new language. The differences between them, while daunting at first, are really not that hard to learn. Maybe at one time you tried another DAW and you were quickly stumped that it wasn't exactly like your primary DAW. Naturally, your workflow would come to a grinding halt. You would then throw up your hands and say, no thanks. Learning a new DAW takes a little more patience and curiosity. It also takes a genuine interest in doing so. Why, you may ask, would I suggest you do this? Let me turn it back to you and ask, is it crazy to think you might get some work from others that was based in another DAW? Probably not. It happened to me. I was asked to mix a record that started in GarageBand, which at this point in time is Logic Pro without all the bells and whistles. So in the course of the the project, I bought Logic and jumped in and imported the GarageBand session, which was quite simple. In fact, it opened up immediately. And I stumbled a bit and I had to Google some things and I didn't get it at first, but eventually I generated the first of many mixes for this record that I ended up working on. And along the way, I learned a few time-saving tricks and now I'm at a point where I can confidently mix in Logic without issue. Plus, I still pick up little tips and tricks along the way to enhance my workflow. The client was happy because we were able to communicate in his native DAW language, and I didn't have to export files into my DAW of choice all the time, and I gained a new skill in the process. Now, when someone asks if I can work in Logic, I have no problem. The reality is, is that there are more DAW choices out there for people to choose from, and not everyone is going to use your DAW. Being able to operate at a basic level in more than one of those DAWs might give you a leg up in a hiring situation. 
I know it's a pain once you have learned your DAW and put all your years into it, but look at it as speeding up your workflow. And what I mean by that is rather than spending your time trying to communicate to your clients the process of exporting from their DAW to yours and possibly losing some files in the process, just have them send you the session and get to work. Worst case, you learn something new in the process. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Bill Schnee here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It is a true pleasure to have you on. You have a, uh, a very long career, and I'm sure that there's lots to talk about. So let's just dive right in. I do know that you were born in Phoenix, Arizona. Right. I'm curious about 
the key takeaways of your time in Arizona? Because I know that you started in Arizona, you went to San Francisco and eventually wound up in Los Angeles. Right. Talk to me about what was important about your upbringing that contributed to where you're at today. I think, funny enough, one of the main things might be being an only child. Mm. And I say that because I wasn't happy about being an only child. Some people I know that were only children don't mind it, but I didn't particularly like it. But I found my friend on the radio in music. And that's where I started, you know, at a very young age listening to music. And back in those days, that's when a disc jockey had complete control over what he played. And there weren't, there weren't even formats, at least in Arizona. I mean, a guy, one guy's three hour show could have one thing going on and the next guy could have another. You could hear, you'd hear everything from hillbilly music to the jazz standards of the day to, to the pop stuff. So I got a, a good introduction to all, all kinds of music at an early age. Let's talk about your parents for a sec. What do you think, looking back on it with, you know, hindsight being 2020, what do you think the impact of your parents was on your career? Well, that's interesting. As I started playing music in grade school, started on the trumpet, then, uh, then I went to saxophone, then I went to the keyboard, and they, they got me keyboard lessons. My mother especially, who was a musician of sorts, was very encouraging about that. My dad was a, a doctor, very austere from the old country. He's Austrian. He liked music, classical primarily. But when I started getting more serious about music, he was definitely not in favor of it. Uh, he wanted me to have a, a real career. And in fact, it's kind of sad because as I've said before, this might end up on a psychiatrist's couch if I ever visit one. Uh, my dad, when he passed away quite a while ago now, I probably had two or three Grammy nominations and 10 gold records or something. And he literally looked at me one day and said, Bill, when are you going to get a real job? So I don't know. <laughs> Never got my dad's approval. My mom, of course, my mom was one of those moms. She liked everything I ever did, you know, from <laughs> kindergarten on. So yeah. Moms are great like that. Yeah. Growing up playing the drums, when I moved out, my mom said, I really miss the sound of you playing drums in your bedroom. And I thought, <laughs> wow. Only only a mother. <laughs> only a mother would say that. <laughs> so did your, did your father's more strict viewpoint, did it have an impact on you in the way that caused you to want to rebel and follow your path anyway? I wouldn't say that. I just knew from the time, you know, I was, we were very fortunate. Uh, we moved to Southern California when I was 16 for my senior year. And I met some lads and we started a band. And as soon as we graduated, we got a record deal, uh, Decca Records. And once I hit that real studio and saw and heard what was coming out of those speakers, I was sold. Uh, now, I had already, I had started college and I made it through the first semester and quit because we were going to be stars. I mean, you know, the LA teens were going to be stars. That's all there is to it. They told us so. So I diverted from that for a couple of years and finally went back to get my degree, which I still never did, but that's another story. Again, trying to make my dad happy, my parents happy. And it, you at one point had a, uh, a stint in law school, did you not? Yeah. When I, there again, trying to, to, to make them happy. Uh, because again, the pressure was on. This is in the beginning. So the pressure was really on the beginning of my career. So the pressure was really on by my dad. And I found out I didn't realize it 
until then that you can go three years of college and with good grades and a good score on LSAT and get into any law school in the country. So I did that and started law school and got through the first semester. But when I started the second semester and got the report card, I had been faking it because there just wasn't time to do all the reading and classwork and sessions. And by then I was independent on my own. So I had to do sessions to pay the bills. So I decided uh, in the second semester that since I'd quit college for two and a half years chasing the band, I'd quit law school for a year and a half and continue to chase music. If it worked, great. If it didn't, I'd go back and get the degree. And uh, I, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> You're not writing a book about being a lawyer these days. No, but, uh, no, no. Now, you uh, you did have a stop in San Francisco with the family. What what took you all there? My dad, when he became a doctor, he was in New York and had a private practice on Long Island. And when World War II came, he was pulled in to work in the Army. So he, when the war ended, he decided he wasn't going to go back into private practice. I think he had a rough time with what they went through in World War II with what he was putting GIs back together. And so he went and took some classes, business classes, and got into administrative medicine, hmm. dealing with managing clinics or hospitals, that kind of thing. So... You know, we were in Phoenix when I was born. And then when I was 13, we moved to, to San Francisco where he worked for three years there and then got a, another place, another job in Los Angeles. And that's when we moved down. Do you remember by chance where you lived in San Francisco? Uh, yes, in the Seacliff District uh -huh. near the end of California Street. And Seacliff to this day for the audience listening is, that's actually a very, uh, very fancy place now. I don't know what, yeah. it, what it was like back then, but that's Robin Williams used to live there. Uh, Sharon Stone, like yeah. Hollywood folks used to, or still live there now. Yeah, oh yeah, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the city. We weren't quite down in the in those huge houses. We were just above it, but still, the Sea Cliff. And your time in San Francisco. What years are we talking about there? That would be sixty to sixty three. Okay, so not quite the summer of love. And uh, not too much exposure to that. No. So you move to Los Angeles, Southern California, when you're 16. You have this band and you go through the motions of getting, you know, you got a record deal. You're getting that exposure as a player. And there's a part in your book that you talk about where you, you become, I think you ask a question to the engineer, like, can you teach me this? And he says, no, get in there and play. I'm going to teach this guy. <laughs> Talk about that realization that you had that, hey, this, this is cool, this audio thing. Okay, so our first deal was, as I said, on DECA, and we recorded at Capitol and Western, two of the best studios to this day, but definitely uh, back then, 1964, and with whatever engineers... And those were the days when you did a single, you recorded four sides, they released a single or two. If something happened, you ran in and finished the album. If you didn't, goodbye. And for us, it was goodbye. And our producer on DECA, a guy named Gary Usher, who did a lot of Hot Rod records, he had brought in a guitarist to augment the band on one of the sessions, a guy named Richie Podler, phenomenal musician. 
Uh, turns out that Richie is also a phenomenal engineer. I didn't even know that at the time. But when we got dropped, I he had given me the address of his studio. I went to visit him and I said, you know, we got dropped. And he said, oh, you guys were great. He said, I can get you a deal. Go see this guy, Mike Kerb. He's going to go places. And uh, I guess he was right about that. So we went, I went to Mike Kerb. He sure enough signed us and Richie was to produce us. So here after recording at Capitol and Western, we went into Richie's funky little studio in the Valley called American Recording. And we put down the first track. And when I came in for the playback, the sound that came out of the speakers was clearly an aha moment for me. I had never heard the emotion that good sound could bring. The band had never sounded like that, even in those other really great studios. And that's when I turned to Richie and said, can you teach me how to do this? <laughs> so I went off on my own and found a little Mickey Mouse kind of studio where my parents lived and got started there. But ultimately, funny enough, just two and a half years later, ended up going back and working at American Recording. Interesting. Interesting. You, you, you mentioned Mike Kerb. Didn't, didn't he? Yeah, he became the uh, 42nd Lieutenant Governor of California. Yes, he did. Under Jerry Brown, actually. The first uh, round of Brown. The yes. first round of Brown, 79 to 83. Yeah, to say the least that he went places. Was there a point in your brain where you, and I know that you played keyboards and you, you talk about in the book about chopping your parents' Hammond so you could make it more portable and, f and fit it in the back of the ginormous trunk of the family car. At what point in your brain did you consciously make the switch of, you know what? I don't know if I want to be a dedicated player anymore. I want to make records as a producer, as an engineer. I'd always been the uh, kind of the head of the band putting things together, especially from a recording standpoint, because I, I was always fascinated with tape recorders and that kind of thing. But uh, when I had that aha moment at Richie's, I knew right then that I wanted to know how to create that kind of a sound to bring emotion to music when I saw what it could do. And as I got started engineering, learning it all, and then as I said, two and a half years later, I went back and actually talked him into hiring me and working there. It was, it was still in the back of my mind that it, this was going to be an adjunct to my writing music and writing songs and producing music. So it, it just kind of slid kind of naturally. The problem came when I popped so quickly as an engineer that I was working very, very quickly with some of the best musicians alive. And it didn't take long before I just got totally intimidated and stopped playing. Hmm. Kind of sad, really, but I, I've still gone back a few times. You know, you'll find my name on a few songs here and there. But engineering and producing just took the day. It's interesting how when you get exposure to people, players on a high level, what that can do to your ego as a player. Yeah, absolutely. And you think, wow, psh, I'm not going to ever be as good as that person. Well, what really, really sealed the deal in that regard is the incredible keyboard player and producer Michael Omardian and I started together. And... Uh, when we started, we were both kind of jack-of-all-master-of-none musicians. We'd fool around on all kinds of instruments. Keyboard was our main instrument. He was maybe 20% better than me when we started. I don't know what happened. A touch of uh, the hand of God or something. Within six months, I kid you not, he was 50 or 60% better than me. 
And a year later, that's when I just, I, I didn't know what to do anymore. We would sit at the piano together and I, I was totally intimidated. I wouldn't put my hands on the keys when we were writing a song. I, I was so intimidated. And I'm sure if you were to compare and see, you know, almost like a split screen of your lives, I wonder if he had a moment of clarity about playing, like you had a moment of clarity about producing and engineering. That's probably a very good point. You mentioned the the great players that you've been exposed to in your career in general. You've had an opportunity to work with some of, I mean, some of them, talking about drummers alone, <laughs> Bernard Purdy and Steve Gadd. And I mean, I could go down a huge list, but what I'm curious about is what have you learned after all that time in the business? What did you learn about what works best in communicating with a hired gun like that? First of all, because I'm sort of a drummer, I'm actually halfway decent. My big problem is I rush. But uh, being a drummer, uh, I've always been able to communicate great with drummers, you know, in terms of talking shop or you know, t telling them what I want kind of thing. And of course, the thing that speaks the loudest is if they're happy with the way they sound. I mean, that's always been my thing is to try to make the musicians happy, whatever that takes. And every case, it's, it's the sound. You know, they're putting their heart and soul into performing. And when they come in the control room, they want to hear something back that doesn't disappoint. And I saw that early on with when drummers would come in and tell me, wow, that sounds great. And I wish I could remember who. I don't remember. It was one of the big drummers at the time. And this is early, early on, early, early, early 70s. I said, you don't know how many times I come in a control room and I'm just deflated because the sound, uh, it just sounds horrible. I, I played it much better than I'm hearing it. So that was that whole thing with, you know, whatever it takes to bring the emotion out in music. And that's what I've always tried to do with every instrument. But Drums especially, uh, I've, I've always taken a liking to because I, since I've been involved in basically pop music my whole life, it's, I feel that they're the backbone of, you know, most musical tracks. You know, uh, being in the studio and working with great players uh, can be tense sometimes because you're trying to do your best, you're trying to be fast, and when you do the best that you can and they come in and and they're still not quite satisfied... What goes through your head about trying to to solve the problem, to make it so that you can make them happy so that you can move on to the next part of the record? Well, whatever it takes. I mean, if somebody is actually going to voice a complaint about something, you know, that makes it easy. Hmm. You know, I don't like the way the toms are sounding, that kind of thing. Then, you yeah. know, well, what, you want them to be a bit liver, deader? What? What's What about them? But what I found over the years is that the more professional musicians have figured out from years of playing what they like, what they don't like, and can be very articulate if they have something that they're not happy with. It's when you, I was dealing with bands, and especially young bands, that if they have a problem, and it's not always with the sound, a lot of times with music too, they don't really know what the problem is, and you have to kind of get in there and second guess, try to figure out and think for them and say, oh, is this what you're thinking? You know, there's always this issue too, and I know we're kind of focusing on drummers, but being in those sessions where, and I don't know if you've encountered, I'm sure you've encountered this, but you know, when you have a, a session player, they take pride in their instrument and they show up prepared generally. But when you have a band, the dynamics are very different and the focus on what they do is very different. So was it not uncommon for drummers to show up with 
less than stellar drum sets, poorly tuned, poorly taken care of, and still being kind of somewhat belligerent about using that because that's their sound? Yeah, absolutely. Not so much the belligerence. I don't recall that exactly, but for sure showing up with drums that aren't tuned at all. Being a wannabe drummer, I've always had a set of drums since my band, since the L18s, and because uh, I loved playing them. And the first Mickey Mouse studio I worked at was next to, door to, of all things, a drum shop. And so I spent a lot of time, since we didn't have many sessions, I spent a lot of time at the drum shop getting to know the guys and learning about drums, uh, the mechanics of, of drums and the, uh, the, all the science of it that goes into it. And I love that aspect of it. So I got very good at tuning drums. And of course, I also learned early on that, if, that, of course, like with a lot of instruments and drums especially, tuning them for one player doesn't mean anything when another player gets on them. Mm -hmm. I remember a friend of mine was doing a session and he said, can you come and tune the drums? It's a, it's a young band. And I said, sure. And I went and I tuned them and he recorded a little piece of it. And then uh, I called him after the session and said, everything go okay? And he said, yeah, but the drum sound wasn't good at all. He said, as soon as he started playing. So, you know, it, it's all about the physics of especially drums with two heads and the attack sustain ratio and what it takes to get, you know, the drum to sing, to, to do what it, it's been built to do. You know, obviously the, uh, the amount of the hit, the kind of head that it's hitting, so many things go into it. And it's surprising how many even halfway decent drummers don't know anything about tuning their drums that much. But I have to say that all of the really, I can't remember any of the top, top drummers. And as you pointed out, I have worked with an awful lot of them that have ever come in with a drum sound that was terrible at all. I mean, they, they pretty much have figured out how to tune their drums and get the sound that they like. Now we've talked a, a bit about session players and working with bands. And drummers are an odd, odd breed. And I think we can both say that because we both play drums, but singers, that is on another level of importance, of ego. There's just so, so many layers to, to the onion, so to speak. What have you learned over the years about working with singers, communicating with them to get the performance out of them that you need from them? Yeah. For me, it starts with from a sonic standpoint, knowing that I've got the best microphone for them. So if it's an artist I've never worked with that doesn't have a favorite microphone, because a lot of the, some of the big, big stars that I've worked with that I wasn't there at the beginning of their career, they figured out what they want in terms of a microphone. But if it's someone I've never worked with that doesn't have a preference, I'll start by putting two or three of the best mics that I think would be good for them out and just having them do a little bit of a test. So showing the care and concern is where it begins for me. I think that's important with everything I do with all the musicians. I find that singers either, if, if they're just singers, they tend to focus almost too much on their voice. Now, that is their calling card. That's what represents them. And so they need to be concerned about it, as I am, because I'm very protective of artists and uh, artist rights and, and their performances and everything. But if they sometimes, some of the people, when, when they hear mixes back, all that matters, all they're listening to is the voice. Mm -hmm. Just like when I started the tracks on Asia with Steely Dan, the first playback, Donald came in the control room and said, turn my voice down. It's too loud. And it was not too loud. And so he said, more, more. I said, okay. And later I asked him, I said, 
you don't like your voice? He said, no, it's a necessary evil. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you meet somebody for the first time that you're going to work with, it's a high profile person, an artist that you know is going to get promoted. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like a Whitney Houston. The first time you meet, that's always, you know, that's the kind of the make or break moment, isn't it? Yeah. As far as like breaking the ice and forging a bond with them. Did you ever have any techniques to introduce yourself to somebody or, or make them comfortable? I am actually a, an extremely shy person, uh, painfully shy. To this day, if you put me in a party with people I don't know, I'll try my best to hide in a corner. I don't do small talk that well, and I'm just painfully shy. And I remember having a conversation with myself early, early on in dealing with artists, somebody that I wanted to produce. And I had to literally say to myself, Bill, if you don't tell them, if you don't come out of your shell and talk to them and tell them you like what they do, they're never going to want to work with you. (laughs) So I've worked with a lot of producers that are phenomenal with that aspect of producing, bringing the most out of out of an artist by the encouragement and talking. And that that's, I've had to work at that really hard. I'm a lot better than I was. I'll never be phenomenal at it, but yeah, you want everybody to be comfortable. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. Uh, they're, everybody to be relaxed and so they can do what you're there to do. So like I said, I'm, I'm a lot better at it now. I'm pretty happy with how I am. I wish I was better. Yeah, the, it, the, it's a challenging business to be in, to be somewhat of an introvert. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that part is, has, has not been fun. Of course, as time went on with experience and honestly, some degree of success, I was a lot more comfortable and able to do it. How did you handle your early success when you really started to make a name for yourself? Did you have to kind of temper your feelings about it or or did you just embrace it with open arms? Well, I've always, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I, I've never had a problem. I've never had a problem with success. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I've always looked at what I do as a gift that I have, that God gave me. I worked very hard to develop it, but it's something that comes so naturally to me that it has to be a gift. It just has to be in me, in my DNA. Mm -hmm. And as a result, because I do believe in God, I could never get kind of puffed up about it and never have been. Do you think being, being a man of faith has kind of helped you with humility then? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. How have you found, and and maybe it's just not talked about very much, but, you know, I'm not quite a religious person, but, you know, I was brought up in a Catholic home, going to church every Sunday, but did you ever have a problem showing your faith to people in the music industry? No, I, I, it's not like I'm proselytizing. In Mm -hmm. fact, I've always found it interesting how, and let's take the LA session scene, how I guess the word got, gets out. You know, one person, if you ever talk to one one guy about being a man of faith, that so many people knew about it or would talk to me about it that I never spoke to about it. Interesting. To to talk about their faith or, or just ask you questions? Ask questions mm. or make fun of me, either one. Mm. <laughs> but I'm sure it's been, as a person of faith, I'm sure it's been a, a guiding force for you throughout your career. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What impact have your peers had on you? And I'm talking about Al Schmidt, Roger Nichols, Elliot Shiner, or Massenburg, any of those guys in terms of, did they inspire you? Did you learn things from them? Did they, did you look to any of them as mentors? Honestly, I, I came up, I think before all of them, or at least before I knew anything about George, George might've been ticking in early, early, early seventies, other than Al. And uh, it's an interesting story about Al. In junior high, when I was in San Francisco, I got into stereo, hi-fi, became an audiophile of sorts, and put together my first system that I built and spent my allowance on, on albums. And some of the albums that I liked at the time were Henry Mancini albums. Hmm. And I thought they sounded amazing. And back then, early 60s, a lot of engineers didn't get credit on albums, but by golly, Hank made sure that this guy, Al Schmidt, got credit on every album. And because his name was Schmidt and my name was Schnee, I, I just always remembered it and realized that, remembered that this guy was a really good engineer. So years go by, I become an engineer. Middle 70s, I'm working in a, in a studio alongside Al, who's in another room. We meet, we get to know each other. And I ask him to go to lunch one day. And he says, sure. So we went to lunch. Italian restaurant, of course. And uh, while we're there, I, I said, Al, I got to tell you, you are a real genius. He says, well, no, I'm not. What do you mean? I said, well, I've been to these RCA, I've worked in these RCA studios, and I haven't got a clue how you got that ambient, gorgeous sound on those Henry Mancini records in those rooms. And he said, he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said, well, I didn't do those in that room. That was the original RCA studio on Sunset and Vine. I went, oh, yeah, you're not a genius after all. <laughs> Only mildly talented, not a yeah, genius. Yeah. And of course, you know, one of the things that I think those guys would all verify 
is the fact that balancing, I really think that balancing is a gift. You either have it or you don't. It's kind of odd to me seeing all of these videos that are out there about mixing. And this is kind of why I've, I don't really want to do one. I've been asked to do a lot of them because to me, all of that stuff to put a mix together is one thing, but look at Al here at 90 oh, years yeah. old. And it's not about the technology. It's about putting those faders where it feels like music and whatever, what goes into that. And of course the times and technology have changed dramatically, but I think all of those guys would agree with me that balancing is the key. Yeah, still the core concept. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about family throughout your career. How have you managed the work-life balance over the years and dealt with family, relationships? How's that worked out? Were there stumbling points? And how did you work through those? Well, it's all where your priorities lie. And being at this now for 50, oh my gosh, 52 years, I've seen a lot of people, I've lived, gone through a lot of my friends' divorces. And I, I saw early on one of the things that becomes kind of commonplace is when a musician or an engineer or producer, that's somebody involved in music that is so passionate about what they do, that quite often they marry women whose dad was not like that. He wore a suit and tie and came home at five o'clock every day. And if you're a serious musician or in, in the studio business in general, five o'clock is just another tick. Mm -hmm. So it, it really is a matter of putting the family first. And that, that has definitely been difficult at certain parts of my career. Mm -hmm. And I am sad to say that I did go through a divorce, but I can tell you that it had nothing to do with that aspect of it. And when, I, when I, I remarried 35 and a half years ago, the woman that is now my wife, her, her father was a, an oil executive who wore a suit and tie, carried a briefcase, and was home at five o'clock. And in fact, I, she was in law school when I met her. And she was in law school at Texas when we got engaged. And I insisted that she come to LA and do her last year of law school there so she could see exactly what she was getting into, which includes the people involved, which are not like people her parents would have known, <laughs> and, uh, and the hours and, uh, and everything like that. But I mean, I haven't done an all-nighter in a long, long time, decades now. But there was a time when that was how things were done a lot of times. You know, with a band, we get in and you're going to get it and however long it takes. And of course, a lot of bands are night people to begin with. A lot of musicians are night people, grow up playing in clubs and this and that, so they like recording at night and going into the wee hours, which families don't. That's right. That's right. I'd like to talk to you about disagreements. Disagreements in the studio. How have you learned how to deal with disagreements with those that you are working with? And, you know, I'm sure that at some point in your career, there's been points at which tempers have gone off the rails a bit, but all in all... What's the key to handling disagreements in the studio with people? I've got to tell you, I've experienced very, very little in terms of any kind of disagreement that would have caused hair to stand up or anything. I've always believed that recording and producing are servants' roles. You're there to serve the artist. And as I always said, uh, as far as producing, their name 
on the cover is in big letters. My name is on the back in little teeny letters. It's their record. I want them to be happy with it. If something is going down that I don't believe in or I think I can make better or help or whatever, I'm certainly going to voice my opinion. But in the end, if they want it one way and I want it another, I'm going to give in and let them have their way as a producer. Mm -hmm. Were there times where you felt their decision was the wrong decision? Or or by the time the record comes out, have you turned the page and moved on from that? Oh, yeah. I don't hold grudges of, or anything. And yeah, there there have been several. <laughs> Take the song I wrote on a bo- one of the Boss Skaggs albums that he took off the album. <laughs> big mistake, big mistake. <laughs> but seriously, yeah, I, it's their record, and I'm not going to stand in the way, and I'm not going to hold a grudge. You know, it's really interesting. You're a very interesting interviewer. I really like you. Except that you've asked a lot of questions that I don't have a good answer for. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're, you're doing great. You're doing great. And sometimes the fact that you haven't experienced some of the things I'm asking you about, I think is a testament to your career as well and, and your style of, of working with people. So in your interview with Andrew Sheps on, on his YouTube channel, there was a, a comment made towards the end where you were talking about just the differences the way records are done today versus how they were done in, we'll just say, at, at your your peak in your career. Other than the obvious, like the technological, the Pro Tools versus tape kind of concepts, do you see differences in how records are made today from a stylistic point of view that bears no resemblance to what you you experienced? Well, of course, the, the biggest thing is the fact that so many records today are made with individual musicians. They're, mm. they're not gathered in a room, all pooling their resources, which I think is a, it's a real shame. There's wonderful things that can be done individually and so on, but that whole camaraderie of a group of musicians being in a room and offering the, all of their talents, combining it with the producer and the engineer, that was a really wonderful, wonderful way to make music. I myself have, funny enough, have just started I'm producing a girl for its first uh, album I'm doing that it is completely in the box, programmed, as it were, calling on some of my great musician friends, where here I am with an unbelievable microphone, tube microphone collection, and the only microphone used was on her voice. It's kind of funny, but uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed making the record that way, I must say. So it's not that I think it's wrong what's going on. I just miss that aspect, which funny enough, after moving to Nashville uh, two and a half years ago, before COVID anyway, they're still doing a lot, lot, lot more of that than there's being done in LA. You know, yeah. every, everybody in the room together. That's what I'm meaning. Well, speaking of Nashville, your time spent in Los Angeles versus Nashville, what are your observations of Nashville as a city of music and recording as compared to, to Los Angeles? What, what have you observed? Well, just talking about since I moved here, because I would come to Nashville from time to time for work over the years. And when I started that, which would have probably been in the early 80s sometime or 80s sometimes, it was obviously a very, very different town. And uh, in the last eight, 10 years, it's exploded. And it's a lot more cosmopolitan kind of place on a small level than it was 30 years ago, which I'm very, very happy about. But uh, the music community here is, and especially the engineers and stuff, it's, it is much more of a community than Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, uh, 
there was the session sausages, the session musicians that did a lot of the work, and they were all good friends. You know, we were all good friends and so on. But uh, I didn't sense, other than that, much of a, as much of a community as I see here, and especially the engineers here. Just a few years ago in L.A., they started to be a, a get-together once a, well, it actually was once a week where the engineers would get together. That started just a few years before I moved here. But I've been very happy with how the uh, city has embraced me and, and all the engineers. A lot of the, I guess they're the best engineers here. They, they certainly seem like it to me. They're all great guys. And we get together before COVID. We get together for food once uh, every month or two. If we could, just on a broad perspective, I'd like to talk a little bit about money and business and money management throughout your career. What have you learned about survival as an audio professional? And when you get paid, you know, managing that money that does come in, have you had any pitfalls in your career or there, and do you have advice to others about proper money management to survive? There you go again with one of those questions that I'm not going to be able to give you a good enough answer to. See, I, 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 the problem is everything I'm, I start to say makes me sound like an egomaniac, and I don't want to think that for a second. You're a man of great experience. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. But I've been very fortunate that by 10 years into my career, how do I say it gracefully, I, I've been very successful. So I had a business manager taking care of stuff. You don't mm. want to talk about that to the people that listen to this necessarily. So it's, you know, I've been very, very fortunate. And that's, it's a tough question. Do you feel that if, if you didn't have a business manager that you wouldn't have been as well insulated from financial ruin or, or pitfalls? Well, here's how it goes. Okay. Well, when I started out, of course, like anybody starting out, not a lot of money is coming in and you have to really be careful, which I was. I've always been a car guy, so I made a conscious decision to spend less on an apartment and more on a car. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that because I was still living within my means. In fact, in those days, I did find myself eating a lot of popcorn for sustenance. But as things picked up, and then I was very fortunate within the first eight, 10 years of my career to have really good success as a producer, now I was fortunate to have a lot of money coming in. And I wasn't having any necessarily problems with it, I would say, until I decided to build a studio. And, <laughs> and what happened, no, it might not be what you think yet, but what happened was I found a building mm -hmm. and it was absolutely incredible building. It would have been just absolutely unbelievable. And two studios and it would have housed two studios, an old bank building with parking for 76 cars which in Los Angeles was not easy to find. And everything about it was great. And I started doing space utilization with the architect and realized I didn't have enough money to develop the whole thing. And I asked the architect, could we start with one room and then do the second one down the road? And he said, try as hard as I can. I cannot guarantee that you would be able to do live sessions with pounding going on. So I'll have to say no to that. And with that, I kind of panicked. And I was still in escrow uh, on the building. And so I called the, the real estate salesman back and said, I'm going to bail. And he said, really? I said, yeah, I've got to. I just, I hate it, but I, I can't afford to develop it. And he said, okay. And he called me back a day later and he said, is it okay if I 
put a consortium together and they take over your, your offer. I said, sure. So he went to his boss. They took it over. They had no intention of keeping it. This is $1979. They took it over and with before escrow closed, they resold the building for $100,000 more. I could have done that. Oh. And, and with that, I said, I need a business manager. <laughs> and so I got a business manager who then, it was hysterical because I found another building that I ultimately did buy and, and develop into a studio. And I'll never forget, he, when I went to him with it, he said, I can make you more money with investments than a recording studio will, but if it's something you got to do, then you got to do it. And I said, yep, I got to do it. Wow. I've never heard of somebody doing that, but then again, I'm not real estate savvy either. So interesting. A quick hundred grand like that. Yeah. Unbelievable. So let's talk about the book. The book is called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. What made you decide to want to do a book? Well, I've always loved telling stories, and I've been very fortunate with this lengthy career to have a lot of very fun stories. And I would tell them to people, they would say, why don't you write a book? And I thought, yeah, maybe. But it was, just seemed too self-serving. It seemed like it was going to be, I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that. So it wasn't until one of the clients I had took me to dinner after we finished mixing and said, how did you get started? I started telling stories and 20, 30 minutes into storytelling, he said, you should write a book. And I said, yeah, I've heard it before. And he said, well, Bill, the record business as we know it, or sadly now maybe knew it, the record business as we know it was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s and peaked in the 70s going into the 80s. It was a very short time, a very iconic time, never to be repeated again. And you were there. And when he said, you were there, it dawned on me that I could write a book and put other stories that have nothing to do with me in so that it wasn't all about me. And I got in the car after that dinner and called my wife and said, I think I'm going to write a book. And that's how it got started. Now, funny enough, when we came to the editing process, they had to chop out so much the uh, editor wanted to keep all the stories about artists and things that I've done in there. So too much of that stuff for my taste got cut out, but it is what it is. And uh, in order to facilitate the fact that there is a lot more available to read outside of the book, before we got started in our conversation here today, you were telling me that there is going to be a part of your website where you can take a, a key from the book, yeah, uh, a code, and actually get access to more content from the book. Right. You have to have the key and the key is in the book. But yeah, we, we started BillSchnee.com, which I'd never used. And there's a tab for got a key question mark. And when you go there with the uh, phrase that's in the book, you put it in, there's two thirds more of the book that books, a hundred thousand words and 60,000 got cut out. So there's a, there's another book almost in itself there behind the locked door. So for the listener, we'll include a link in the show notes to BillSchnee.com so you can check out what we're talking about. We'll also include links to the book and uh, you can buy it in physical format or you can buy it in Kindle format. So we'll make sure and include all that. You know, I'm sitting here staring at the website. You have over 125 gold and platinum records and 50 top 20 singles to your name. And uh, how many how many Grammy awards have you won? I've been nominated, personally nominated, for the best engineer 11 times. I've only won twice, 
so it means I'm a nine-time loser. <laughs> if, if you talk to my kids, it's a higher number. But you can tell I've used that joke before. Uh, <laughs> that's but, that's you know, such a dad joke. Obviously, I've worked on dozens, literally dozens of Grammy-nominated and winning albums, but those are the ones that I personally, as an engineer, nominated and have won twice for Steely Dan, Asia, and Gaucho. And I'm sure that in your career, with, with all these successful records, I'm sure that even in the midst of that, you've worked on records that never got the promotion that was necessary to, to make them happen. How do you feel when you, you work your heart out on a record and it doesn't really get the attention that you think it deserves? It hurts. It hurts bad. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those pop up in my brain all the time. One in particular was I produced two records for Elton's record label, Rocket Records. One was with Colin Blundstone, the fabulous voice of the zombies. And the other one was with Kiki D, who he, of mm. course, paired up oh, yeah. with on Don't Go Breaking My Heart. And Rocket was one of those deals. He was on MCA at the time. And those kind of deals that were given to artists, many of them suffered greatly because the record company wasn't making as much money on those records as they were on the ones on MCA. And so they had promotion problems all the time. But I'll always remember we, Kiki and I went to New York to play the album for Elton. And when we played it for him, when he finished, he turned to us and he said, if we can't break this record, we're a bunch of ninnies. And uh, I don't think that it was his fault. I mean, truthfully, there never was much success on Rocket Records. But yeah, it, it, that can hurt. And in your career, have you ever come to a point where you, you got burnt out on making records? Did you ever want to stop at any point? Never. And I never want to stop. Several of my friends, they don't even listen to music, but music is everything to me. It always has been. My dream, I've always said it, my dream is to fall over dead on the console, <laughs> push the talk back. You know, I think the first chorus clunk <laughs> and go, just go out. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of retirement has never entered your mind. Please don't swear. I don't yes, appreciate swear words. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I used the R word. Yeah. No. Wow. No, not in my vocabulary. And I'm very fortunate, I'm incredibly fortunate that I've got tons of energy, I've been great health, no health issues whatsoever, and all the same passion I had 50-some years ago when I got into this business. Wow. Well, you've got so many years of experience, and you're in a great town for making records filled with incredible session players and great artists and uh, other great engineers as well. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned, speaking of great artists, you mentioned records that were disappointing that they didn't happen. I only produced one country record in my life. And that was with a girl named Mandy Barnett. And it was a, a new record company and they had their problems with promotion and it didn't happen. And this girl is as I've said many times, this is one of the best singers I've ever put a microphone in front of. And of course, with my very fortunate career, that's saying something. And she hasn't lost a step. She's still, when she plays here and you hear her, she is phenomenal. I'm very happy to say that I just, just, it'll be two years when it comes out, engineered a record with her that everyone is going to want to hear that likes great music. It is the last album that Billie Holiday did was a Torch album. It's the songs from that album. And 
she was told 20 years ago by a musician friend here who handed her that Billie Holiday album and said, you know, someday you should do an album like this. And so when the producer, Fred Mullen, suggested doing those songs, her eyes lit up and she jumped out of her skin. And Fred got the wonderful Sammy Nestico, who just passed away two days ago, one mm. of the greatest old-time arrangers, to arrange the album at 95 years old. And I recorded it here live at Oceanway with a 55-piece orchestra and this songbird delivering vocals. And I can't say enough about it. I'm sure being there, watching it all go down, listening to it just makes your hair stand on end when you have a great performer like that with a big orchestra behind them. And unbelievable charts. Just unbelievable to think the guy was 95 when he was doing it. It was cute. Wow. Uh, it started with when Fred called him and said, I'm doing this album. I want you to arrange it. He said, Fred, I'm 95 years old. Let me do one song. You can give it to some arrangers to, to model after. He said, okay. So he turned it in and called Sammy and said, Sammy, it's wonderful. And Sammy said, oh, okay, let me do two. You know the rest. <laughs> <laughs> and on, on song, about song six, Fred called to talk to him. Sammy's wife answered the phone and muffled tone said, Fred, you're keeping him alive with this album. He is living to do these arrangements. So it is the last album that Sammy Nestico did. And boy, between that and this girl who's never done anything like this, I sure hope this album, you know, it's a very unusual kind of album, obviously, it, these days, but it, it is a real masterpiece. Well, I look forward to hearing it very much so. Well, we are out of time. Bill, it has been a true pleasure to talk to you, and I look forward to the day that we can meet in person. It's been too long since I've been in Nashville, and I will uh, pay you a visit at some point. Please do, and thank you very much for having me. Well, it, like I said, it's, it's, it's an honor to have you here. And once again, audience, the, the book that you absolutely uh, have to read is called Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. And, and like I said before, I'll include links in the show notes. Bill? I bid you adieu. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Bill Schnee here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. It really helps out the show. That's it for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his very lovely voice at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about 
things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 